I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello everybody and welcome to Friday's Rugby Weekly with the 42.ie. Gavin Casey with you here and joining us to discuss the ongoing controversy and discourse around the lowering of tackle height, head injuries, etc. Plus to look ahead to another massive weekend of URC action for the four Irish provinces is my colleague with the 42, Murray Kinsella. Murray, how are you? I'm good, Gav. I'm here in Belfast. I'm at the Ulster Stormers match later on and really look forward to that. It's going to be an important battle for Ulster in the kind of race for for top four spots in the URC. I'm also disconcerted at the moment because I just looked at Ireland's photos from their training this morning in Portugal. And again, there's quite a few players wearing hats and pretty well wrapped up. So the media arrive on Monday and there's some serious worry about what we should pack and how how, how warm it's actually going to be. I know there'd be absolutely zero sympathy for us, but <laughs> that's concerning me at the moment. How are you, Gav? Yeah, I'm flying, thanks. Just doing a quick, I guess, brush up of all of the rugby goings on from the last couple of days. I was off yesterday. I was up in Dublin, actually, with one of our listeners, or at least I was on a Zoom link with one of our listeners and members, Kate McAvoy, who has her own podcast called The Last One to See, which is a podcast on which they bring on a guest who hasn't seen like a massive blockbuster movie that virtually everybody else on the planet has seen so i was summoned uh, and we did about an hour on the lion king which i hadn't seen until five or six days ago yeah it was a, a strange experience watching that as a 30 year old man so did you enjoy it uh, look tune into the last one to see and you can hear all about it but uh <laughs> yeah i i did i i understand why it has such a special place in people's hearts and I would say it remains a 10 out of 10 for people who had seen it as a child and then rewatch it, whereas watching it for the first time as a 30-year-old in 2023, it's like a solid 7 out of 10. Um, okay. By the end of this podcast, I want some sort of analogy, Lion King analogy to rugby. Who's who? I so did about 20 minutes it. to think about this. <laughs> well, I can... I swear to God, I, I'm glad you raised that, actually, because... We had so many of those in the members WhatsApp group last night when I mentioned I was doing this Lion King pod. John B said, is it safe to say Mufasa is the monster to, is the monster to Scar's Leinster? <laughs> uh, Jack Crowley is Simba, John added, before anyone claims it. I was going to suggest that. <laughs> Craig Casey being Timon, but you knew that already, David Highland said. And there were yeah. many more messages along those lines. So, so yeah. good. The last one to see. Good podcast. Tune into it. Talk, talk to me about the Champions Cup because that was the one thing I hadn't really had a chance to look into too far. Just the format of it. There's some chat that we might be getting our old Heineken Cup back or at least that old format that a lot of people have been crying out for uh, in recent weeks. What's the latest on that, Murray? How likely is it that it will change? It's very, very likely and potentially even as soon as next season. Um, I think people would have seen Martin and I, who's on the EPCR board um, come out and say that the format's too complicated, echoing virtually every fan, player, coach, media uh, heads kind of view. Every pundit's been against this format with the two large pools. It's very confusing. It's very hard to follow. It's not as engaging as what we had before. The issue here is that we've gone from the previous 
nine match weekends in, in the Champions Cup down to eight. And it's going to be very hard to get back there. From what I hear, the French clubs in particular are loath to give up a, a weekend. Obviously, their top 14 championship is is foremost in their thoughts and, and that could be a sticking point. So, listen, there is scope to go back to the original format, which was six pools of four teams over nine match weekends. But if they can't get to nine match weekends, there's talk of four pools of six now, that would create a new issue because you can't fit six pool games into that narrower window. Um, so you might only play one of the other teams in your pool just once. And then, you know, obviously you can have home or away in that fixture. So there would be an imbalance in that sense. So it sounds like they're finding it difficult to come to a perfect solution. I think everyone misses those old times of the back-to-backs in, in December, for example, when you played everyone in your pool twice. We definitely have rose-tinted glasses. There were blowouts back in those days. There were some massive scorelines. There were some second-string teams sent uh, away from home, from France and, and elsewhere. So it wasn't perfect either then. But I think everyone, including EPSOR, is in agreement that the current format is just around the pool. is just You can't continue with that. So we're going to see change soon. And um, hopefully it's for, for the better because there's no doubt about the knockout element of this competition it's absolutely brilliant the, the level of rugby is outstanding but the pools have lost their appeal massively yeah they really have i always feel as though the acid test should be does it feel worthwhile to explain this to somebody who doesn't really follow rugby and the answer at the moment to me is no and if anybody asks me i'm like honestly you just don't want to hear about it like you're going to lose me after a couple of minutes of explaining this um i think the part that i miss most about the old format was probably just the turnaround fixtures week three and week four the home and away and and this sort of the sea changes that could happen in that week but also the the drama that built up the the, the rivalries that even built up like temporary rivalries that built up knowing oh there was a point of contention at the end of the game in week three and then you're going back to the opposition's house for week four and just resuming that that added a lot added a real layer of intrigue and suspense and drama to the competition that i think um that i think it lacks today but. just the fact that you get to to play and hopefully beat the teams who are directly competing with you for a knockout spot obviously you know in the bigger pools you are still competing against each other but you don't play against each other and it's just it's just been bizarre to be honest it, it just hasn't worked and listen i understand because they've they've been pressed by the english clubs and the french clubs and how many times have they thrown their toys out at the pram but um, yeah, it's, it's great and positive news that we're going to change back to at least something more like what we had before, if not um, that that format. So I think everyone really will, will welcome this. There's no one. I've never come across someone who's a fan of the current pool format. <laughs> it's true enough. Even bigger news related to change uh, is obviously uh, the RFUs, tackle height proposals. You discussed those with Owen on Wednesday's members pod. We're going to throw it to Owen in a moment just to give people who aren't yet members a, a sample of his thoughts. I thought he was really interesting on it. But since that chat, Murray, as well, World Rugby have come out and stated their intention to apply similar-ish changes. Um, it was stressed that it probably the tackle height wouldn't be lowered as far as the waist necessarily and also a major caveat would be that such law changes wouldn't be implemented until after the 2027 world cup which gives a little bit more of a run-up than the amateur game got in england could i just get your immediate thoughts on those world rugby thoughts before we throw to Owen's thoughts on the rfu changes thoroughly unsurprised to be honest I felt like this was coming and the RFU taking that step was was a 
a measure of it. Then you have Alan Gilpin, the World Rugby um, chief executive, doing an interview with on the record with the, the Telegraph, who had this exclusive, basically confirming that this is coming in Elite Rugby too. Um, and as you say, it'll be a number of seasons. I think they mentioned potentially after the 24-25 season. So we'll have a couple of years to get our heads fully around it in terms of the pro game. But it doesn't surprise me. How many times have we discussed this issue? How many times have we talked about the existential threat to the sport? And that's not being dramatic. How many times have we discussed our reservations about what rugby is, what it involves, the horrific injuries that are being caused to people's brains when they finish playing rugby, or sorry, when they're playing rugby and then have to deal with after they they retire. Uh, We're looking at the lawsuits that are coming against the game. And it's clear that World Rugby, in response to that, has to take drastic measures. The, the sport as it is, is causing severe brain injury um, or being linked at least to severe brain injury in people who have played this sport. Uh, and that has to be treated with utmost seriousness. World Rugby have to take measures to show that they're responding to that growing body of, of reports and studies um, that suggest those links between playing rugby and, and brain injury. So... I can't say I'm hugely surprised by it. I understand the explosion of woe and anger. And I think the communication, as we discussed on Wednesday, has been really poor. But increasingly over the last few days, I've been coming to the the point of thinking this has to happen. You know, rugby is it's so dangerous. It it just is. Uh, Again, I don't think I'm being dramatic. It's a a high contact um, sport and I know people make the decision to, to play that but World Rugby is a governing body I know they're going to get a lot of criticism now but their job is to make it as safe as possible and to protect people as much as they can from injury and if it means a, a change that transforms what the game looks like then I think that's worth it if it, if it saves a few people from from brain injury so um, yeah it's been a, a crazy few days for the sport and, and as you say we'll hear from Owen around his thoughts on it but um I'm coming around to the idea and I'm I'm coming around to the reality that things do need to change. Well, let's throw to Owen then who pointed out some of the issues with some of these rule changes on Wednesday's pod for members. What do you think of this law change? It's a, it's a big one. What, what are your thoughts on it? A mess, if I'm honest. I believe there's no consultation with the clubs that were to be impacted by this law change how much world rugby have been consulted on this, who on the RFU board has has got a strong oversight of the game in terms of its current direction and how we can make positive change. I think it's um, fraught with disasters. Even reading an article, particularly in the English system, where you, you could have a player coming from championship and then going into playing a, a national level, national grade one game with the new tackle laws so operating under two completely different systems uh, and the ask of the players particularly those more experienced players to to completely change your tackle technique below the waist i think lends itself to to real concerns so yeah a the the lack of consultation with the clubs that were going to be impacted and how how it can be that refereed effectively given the different natures of, of collisions, especially to to um, demand that every contact type is below the waist because you can you can think of different scenarios. The, the basic one, if you're chasing down a ball carrier that's made a line break and you've got to tackle him below the waist, you're obviously lending your head to go straight into his his studs, aren't you, really? So not being able to, to go above the waist in that scenario. The other 
the big one in rugby is it's about winning the gain line, winning the collisions. So the doubles that have come into the game have, have obviously lent themselves to that that assist tackle being definitely higher. If you go now to to two tackles, two tacklers trying to double from a low body height, I think it lends itself to huge implications for the two tacklers to to collide with each other on the head as well. So for me, there's not been enough thought or foresight gone into the decision and they just rolled it out and, and hoping for the best. I think it's uh, there's a lot to play out here and, and I, I think it would be reckless if, if they actually go ahead with it. Yeah, there's a lot in that. And certainly the communication has been just atrocious, a, a disaster on that level. Um, or if you did say, listen, we're going to have programs to support players, coaches, match officials, including detailed law application guidelines a bit that are being developed to ensure the players and officials will be ready for next season. But you, you, you do that first, I think, and you launch it with detail, with clarity. There's real uncertainty at the moment. There's massive swell of opinion against this including your own obviously own and Johnny Sexton's uh, and many others there's an online petition against this change 72,000 signatures when I checked this morning um, lots of people saying they you know they won't play the game at community level and that's what's jarring to me as well is that this is a community level thing it's not professional rugby um, and therefore you're instantly creating this bigger split or bigger divide between what the two games are I wonder whether the issues are actually the same in the community game which is different to elite rugby. It doesn't have as many of the freakish athletes who can generate massive force, who are constantly double tackling, who have very different technique. Um, so that, that, that'll be some of my reservations ar- around it. In terms of what they're basing this on, the ORFU says that the evidence comes from extensive research and evaluations of law changes in South Africa, France, New Zealand, findings of an orchard mouth guard study carried out in Otago. Um, and France is the big one here. Um, They've actually had this in play for the last number of years in their lower levels of of rugby. Um, And or if you've cited data from there saying there's been a 63% reduction in head-on-head contacts, as well as, you know, reduced levels of kicking, increased passing, increased offloads and and line breaks across the games. And yeah, that's, you know, that's the, the evidence they have for this. There was a study in Stellenbosch as well, but obviously that's quite limited and and this is now a bigger trial essentially to to see how this all affects the the game you, you say you think it's reckless in in what way you, you think you're actually endangering people here or, or how is it reckless on i th- i think a the lack of consultation with the with the clubs i i think you need to understand obviously data is one thing like we Data can definitely be misleading because if you look at, I think I was just looking at a study from the 2019 under 20s World Cup where they studied all the HIAs from from the competition. I believe there was 24 uh, and 20 of those were from tackles um, and 15 were the tackler. Of those 15 tackles, four were upright tacklers and 11 were bent uh, bent at the at the waist tacklers. Um, so that volume suggests that being a um, tackling below the waist actually lends itself to more concussions. But then, if you look at the frequency of uh, waist tackles compared to uh, upright tackles, the the frequency is about five to one. So, so then the data lends itself to believing that that tackling at a at a low height is actually safer. But I I don't think we have enough sample of data to suggest that 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 definitely is the case. And I think. A huge amount of coaching has to go into the the technique of 
of tackling below the waist if that's something that you've never done I've definitely advocated for at junior levels where you can influence change in terms of your coaching and and the the, the direction you're trying to to go in but to, to roll out this to to players that are older and expect them to be able to change habits that quickly i think is going to be challenging and i and I, I, I've seen it so many times. Guys are vulnerable when, when, when they look to low chop. Definitely contact with the knees, contact with the hips. It at an elite level, the the dynamic change of direction. If you're if you're planted early and you're targeting knees or or hips particularly, and there's a a dynamic change of direction that definitely lends itself to to concussion. So. I just need some more evidence that it's a heart, a, a truly tested fact that chop tackling lends itself to less concussions and I, I don't believe we're at that point yet that was Owen Tulin on Wednesday's members pod it's members.the42.e if you want to become a member of the 42 you get those podcasts with Owen midweek plus Bernard Jackman Murray and myself every Monday looking back over the weekend's action or whatever the hell is going on we've had a lot of emails since then Mer, since that chat between yourself and Owen uh, some of which I guess like do a really good job of articulating the variables, the the logistical wrinkles in this, uh, and naturally the possible net positives involved in lowering tackle height. I'm going to read a few of those out and we can uh, address them as you please. Ben Osborne says he moved from playing junior rugby in Ireland to London at the beginning of the 2022-23 season. The response to the RFU's tackle laws among my new clubmates, he says, has been one of general bewilderment, although I tend to agree with the law and I think the game will inevitably change, quite possibly in a radical way, to protect players. I feel sorry for community players here in England, however, as they are being subjected to two conflicting recent RFU laws. As part of the Return to Rugby initiative and to promote more fielded teams, rugby clubs at certain levels below National League are only permitted three substitutes. In my anecdotal experience, this has led to a greater incidence of players becoming concussed and continuing to play. The coaches and referees I have dealt with have been very clear on the dangers and responsibility on players to take themselves out of a game, but I do find the playing culture here from players is a little more risk-willing than in Ireland. Just an interesting anecdotal email there from Ben Osborne, and by all means, if people have... Uh, contrasting or similar experiences in the club game anywhere in the world do get in touch we'd like to hear from you guys and hear what's going on wherever you are here's one from ben walsh as well mer hey guys the thing that strikes me about tackling below the waist is that there's only one head involved in that tackle and only one person who could potentially be concussed the tackler if someone tackles high they're bringing the ball carrier's head into the scenario in which case we have two heads involved and twice as many people who could potentially be concussed with every tackle this seems to me to be the obvious reason for dropping the tackle height and i'm not gonna lie to you murray i probably hadn't thought of it in as clear terms as those my mind probably initially went to try and find problems with this change in England to begin with because I maybe that's just the way my mind works or maybe I was exposed to a lot of the more negative feedback initially and therefore I'm trying to uh, find wrinkles. So I'm thinking along the lines of, well, if you're dropping contact height, uh, you're probably having more collisions between heads and knees. And like, as Ben points out, like it does not guarantee, but really safeguards at least one person in the tackle equation in the contact area yeah well two brilliant emails uh great to get ben osborne's first-hand account and that's an important point is that or if you and world rugby haven't really done that they need to 
they haven't consulted anyone in, in terms of the RFU rather um, and they need to involve the, the people who are, are directly playing and coaching the game um, and really interesting his kind of anecdotal e- evidence there I suppose in terms of Ben Walsh great point I meant to say it on, on Wednesday's pod like it's a really simple clear one that shows this is a, a positive change for, for that very reason that the, the ball carrier's head is taken out of the equation now the, all the data shows that the tackler is more likely to, to be injured in a, a high contact tackle but absolutely if you're reducing that head on head possibility then that's a really positive outcome and again you go back to the data. Um, so the original World Rugby report into this um, back a, a few years ago that kind of launched it all and launched the, the spate of red cards and things that we've seen. It's important to remember that they studied the incidences where tackles cause head injury, but also thousands of tackles where it didn't. So so that's what you're comparing against. And, and that data showed that the risk injury to both players from a high contact tackle when the tackler is upright is 4.3 times greater than a low contact tackle. And then furthermore, head-on-head contact, again, when the tackler is upright, is 6.5 times more likely to result in a head injury than a lower head-to-hip tackle. So, yeah, the the numbers that they've based this on and and in the more recent studies with a lower tackle height, they're they're comparing the concussive and head injury tackles to ones where there was no injury at all. And and so that's the the balance there and and it's kind of maybe forgotten about and omitted. But um, great feedback from the two Bens. yeah, it was it was it was really interesting point from from Ben Walsh around getting the ball or the ta- the ball carrier's head out of the out of that equation. Really, ten out of ten from Ben and Ben. Here's one from Graham Glendinning. Really good question. He says he was fascinated by the recent pod. I am keen that there is a proper shift in tackling safety, as I fear for legal action being the end of the game. I was just wondering what you think about how you stop a player picking and going near the line or more generally tackling a player who is dipping and leading with the head. And I actually think that is such a fascinating element to this. Coaches, players having to figure out a means of uh, producing a defensive stand on their own line where players aren't actually going to be dipping as they try to get over the line and where, at least in the amateur game in England for the moment, you will no longer be able to tackle them above the ways it just I'm even trying to visualize it in my head and I'm just seeing almost guaranteed tries once we get to the line really. yeah this is a big question and, and I certainly don't have the answer to it and and there's been no clarity around that in any of the well the little documentation we've seen around this from the RFU they say they'll clarify all this over the coming months but um it's a really important point because obviously that's a, a large part of the game is teams getting down into the 22 and and attacking from there presumably you'll be able to reach if they're ducking and low to the line, you can wrap from over them. And obviously there'll be contact with their head onto your body there, but it's not direct from your shoulder and upper body area. I would imagine that's part of it. You would suggest that potentially it's too much of an advantage to be able to pick and go. And there was some anecdotal stuff I, I saw from from out of France where in those lower leagues, the referees were incredibly strict against pick and going and making sure that arrival players were on their feet etc to the extent that it, it almost negated from the from the game um, so that would again would, ch- would change how it how it looks but Graham's email points to the really clear and, and urgent need for, for more clarity around this what do the decision makers envisage specifically that kind of stuff looking like um, not just around pick and go but all sorts of tackles when you're tracking back and you're trying to catch them from behind, it can be very hard to 
to go really low there. You're often up around their their upper body, um, preventing tries being scored on on the opposition try line and and players diving, etc. So we definitely need more clarity around this. Here's a different interpretation of things by Niall O'Malley, which I thought was worth discussing. Uh, and Niall was wondering where should the line be drawn between world rugby the referee tmo responsibility towards player safety and then on the flip side of that the informed consent of the players and coaches brackets with the consent of players to make their own decisions regarding rule interpretations penalties post-game sanctions on players etc niall acknowledges the litigation the poor financial health of the sport but says that surely there is some point at which the paternalism for players has to end and the choice and wishes of those taking these risks often with a great financial imperative to do so is respected uh Niall says to me that he hopes I can see the parallels here as somebody who covers boxing and he adds all risks cannot be removed from life and those who choose to do something for themselves or their families or their communities should have a right to do so in an informed way that reduces risks to the greatest capacity while still leaving the pursuit of rugby financially worthwhile and recognizable to the fans who bring the attention and the money and that's uh, a way in which a lot of people will view this And I certainly understand the boxing parallel. And I've made the point on this podcast in the past that while I am absolutely concerned for player safety and would echo all of the sentiments you expressed at the top of the pod, it is often lost in this discourse that these players aren't conscripted. This isn't a draft process. This is um, an act of free will to play the game. And particularly for guys who are playing it at a senior level now, there is information, a lot of it out there, and certainly a lot of dialogue out there about the potential dangers involved in it. I guess where the parallel between boxing and rugby ends is that a lot of the brain damage um, uh, and, and the repercussions from that, that boxers accrue actually happens during the week in training camps, in sparring. They're sparring often hundreds of rounds before fights. We have this interpretation that watching fights like the Thrilla Manila, where Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali go at it for, you know, 13, 14 rounds, and it's pretty sickening to watch. That's what left Ali in a vegetative condition later in life. And it probably didn't help, but equally the thousands and thousands of times he had his head bounced around the ring uh, sparring even wearing headgear it doesn't prevent your brain from uh, being you know moved around within your skull they were probably the major contributing factors where rugby differs i guess is that there's actually minimal contact now during the week because the game has become so physical that to have like full contact training would be absolutely unsustainable and a lot of the damage that I suppose a lot of the damage that we know about in former pros may have been accrued at a time when training was different. I think Steve Thompson has alluded to that point in the past. But also the game has increased in physicality to such an extent that the collisions that are actually occurring on the pitch are potentially detrimental. Like, we don't know um, the extent to which they will be yet because these players are still playing. But these are massive, massive men colliding with each other at great pace at a velocity which is actually unnatural to the human body. And to think that there aren't going to be, you know, massive um, or there isn't going to be a massive spillover from that is, is naive at the same time. Yeah, it, it is. And, and all that stuff week to week is, a, is um, an important factor in this. And players themselves have advocated for less 
less and less contact training, which th that's a positive trend, absolutely. To go back to the email, I suppose, absolutely, people have choice. Um, but that doesn't mean that the governing bodies or people in charge shouldn't try and negate some of the risk. Like, if there was no speed limits on the roads, I think so many people would drive a lot faster and therefore the risk of, of the, to their lives is even greater all the time. Now, it's not a, a perfect analogy because you're, you're choosing to play rugby. Sometimes you have to drive somewhere and you have no choice in that. But like world rugby both in terms of protecting people and care of duty for people, but also financially, they have to, they have to do something here because concussion is, it's, it's the greatest threat to it. And even if you look at the amateur game, like the RFU published the, the latest injury report from the amateur game uh, yesterday, just um, around injury during, during club rugby and also senior cup schools rugby and concussion, both in male and female is the, the most, highly occurring injury in, in all three of those categories men's club rugby women's club rugby and schools club uh, schools senior cup so again the threat isn't just at, at um, international level and they they just have to do something because in the pressure game what they've tried so far hasn't worked the the red cards and the disciplinary side of it just hasn't worked the, the tackle light hasn't dropped we're seeing it every single week and we're asking how do they still not change it's, it's because the, the measures haven't been severe enough so you have to take that option out of the hands of players, I think, sometimes. Um, and if it's confirmed that this is going to happen in a couple of years, then that's the only way they see they can they can do this because the disciplinary sanctions haven't haven't worked. Feels a little bit weird to talk about just URC now after that, doesn't it? But sorry, go on. Yeah, and sorry, just one last thing to add on that pick and go. I, I found the article that I read it in. It's on Talking Rugby Union, um, an Englishman who coached over in France. Just around the pick and goes, 10 metres out or 5 metres out, he said, in France, you weren't allowed nosedive into the ground. So pick and go, you had to move upwards and stay on your feet when you're carrying the ball. They did that so you can, so the defender can chop when you're near the try line. But likewise, the other rule was that if you dive to score a try and you don't score because you're diving at the angle, you'd be penalised, which is, again, it's a, it's a big a big change to the game. That was, um, let me get the name because he deserves do, credit there. Yeah. Uh, it's Luke Cousins um, who, who coached over in, in France and he's on Talking Rugby Union website. So uh, that's really interesting insight as well. We can post the link in the description of the pod, actually. Yeah, good shout. That might be an idea. Fair play. Uh, let's look ahead to the provinces at the weekend then. Uh, firstly, before we do so, let's hear from Birch and yourself. Uh, this is from Monday's pod. You were talking about the conundrum facing Joey Carberry at the moment. And here's what Birch had to say to begin with. In the past, I felt that his position as as the backup to Johnny protected him a little bit in Munster. Um, and if that protection is gone, and that's that's a perception. Uh, um, but if, if, if he's not necessarily has to play because he's the backup to Johnny or whatever, and now they have a natural successor to him you would think and Fekitoa shows more form like you know Roundtree as we saw with leaving Conor Murray out you know um, for the Northampton game etc he seems to be willing to make the right the best calls in his opinion for the team and, and I think that Crowley probably because he's been the one moving around you know he probably deserves a crack and now Joey obviously the problem was I think I thought his general play was actually okay but just missing those goal kicks um, and it's a tiny sample to look at but didn't really bold. Didn't really make you think, right? He's, you know, he his resilience is is at the same level as a as, as a John Ryan or Ross Byrne, etc. And the ability to deal with that. And Munster needed that needed him to kick his goals at the weekend. So I I think 
the lads are in camp now, so he isn't. He'll probably play this weekend. I think he needs a big performance, to be honest, just to um, to settle everything and and show that they need to stick with him at ten, with Crowley being the one who kind of you know fill, fills the gaps for a while. And it's brilliant they happen this weekend because Benetton, it's a huge game. They're they're fighting in on the URC front. Ben Healy, they say, is going to be available. He's gone to Scotland camp. He flew last night, but that's finished on Wednesday, so he comes back in. They can pick him if they want, but you'd imagine Joey will run the team and 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 do that from from ten. So um, yeah, it's a, it's going to be a really interesting one to follow. And I would say he has shown a lot of resilience in his career so far. Like he's been through the absolute ringer with injury. He has got a lot of ability. He's got thirty seven test caps. You do not do that by not being a, a player with great ability and he's only 27 and I suppose if you're looking at it from his point of view this is the 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 kick up the arse if that's that's probably an unfair way of describing it but it's the the motivational snap that you, you need to go to another level and, and that's what they'll all hope to to see from it but because at the moment it feels like others have momentum behind them and even we've seen that Ben Healy isn't going to be just discarded and, and moved to the side Munster are going to rely on him and his really impressive skill set as as well until the end of the campaign so it'll be telling how he handles all of this um, pressure and competition it, you know there's no one comfortable in Munster now no one and like that's the best thing that Roundtree and, and Co have done like that you know for, for years everyone was comfortable in that first team you could pick it every single time the, the, the starting 15 and that was not a good place to be so that's one of the biggest wins that Roundtree has had so far Four massive games for the provinces this weekend, Murray, beginning with Friday night's clash between Ulster and Stormers. Because we're recording on a Friday, let's just say we're going to come back to that one on Monday with Birch because we'll be diving into it for sure. It's a, a massive game for both clubs, really, but particularly for Ulster. We heard from yourself and Bernard on uh, the Carberry slash Jack Rowley situation there. Monster obviously going to Benetton. Uh, that's Saturday at half past two. And... Jesus, really not much between these two teams at all on the table and Benetton are in an, are in an unbelievable run of form at home. Uh, they're scoring points for fun. Uh, this is a really significant test as they showed as well against Ulster only two, three weeks ago. Mm. And amidst all the positive signs and clear signs, I would say, of progress and development in Munster, they still have to <laughs> nail down these playoff spots and it's still a bit in doubt and this is as you say a tough fixture against a team directly above them in the table directly in competition so it almost feels like with what six regular season games we're kind of getting into to knock out rugby here because it's it's been so condensed particularly for Munster because they're trying to catch uh, the, the teams in front of them after that poor start you know Joey Carberry being around gives him that chance to respond over the next period where he can also be in charge of everything at Munster training, leading everything, and he will hope and they will hope uh, helping them to a good result this weekend as well because, as you say, this is a, a huge game for them and it's easy to kind of overlook this weekend because we've come from your uh, from Champions Cup and Six Nations just ahead of us, but uh, the, the provinces certainly won't be feeling that way. Yeah, we were just saying as well before we started recording, how good is it to be able to uh, be looking ahead to a weekend of the URC where there's as much on the line really as there is in Europe or something close to it whereas in the past even recording the podcast two or three years ago where it was the Pro 14 you've kind of knew the listeners a lot of the listeners didn't really give that much of a shit and equally it was difficult to build enthusiasm just to have conversations about it now it's like genuine jeopardy uh, eight of them through in Europe 
five French teams going, or yeah, five French teams going out, three Premiership clubs going out. It's been an unbelievable transformation, and it just keeps going from strength to strength. Really, um, I don't know. There's no question there, really. I just yeah. it feels good to point out that it's it's such a fun competition. Now, that game is going to be a cracker. Leinster should beat Cardiff at home. We know that. Uh, are you expecting anything interesting to emerge from that game? Is there anybody in particular that you might be looking forward to see, albeit we don't have the teams yet? I suppose there's a whole crop of Leinster players there who feel they could have been even in the, the Six Nations squad. And I know there's a, number, a high number of them in there anyway. So from Munster for Leinster for everyone, there's individually points to prove um, and Leinster trying to maintain their juggernaut-like form and you're bang on it is a um, a sign of how far the URC has come in a very short space of time and the much vaunted Premiership continues to get loads of hype but I really do think that the URC has kind of surpassed that now as a league I'm a huge fan of the top 14 but um, we might come back to that another week because I think perceptions of the URC outside of the competing nations still linger and I, I understand it because I, I don't think it was a great league up until a few years ago when the improvements and the South Africans joining us but um, yeah and, and I know a number of our listeners feel that way as well it's not getting the grow it deserves outside uh, our shores yeah I don't know how we do that we've got to do more to grow the game I guess maybe if we just start screaming about the premiership being actually shite uh, it might sort of even the playing field a little bit we will come back to it and I feel like that's maybe the direction in which the conversation will go but uh Finally, Connacht host Lions, another crucial game. That is the Saturday night game. Leinster Cardiff, by the way, is quarter past five in case you haven't looked up the fixtures yet. Connacht Lions, uh, 7.35. Jeez, Uh, like Connacht, I almost don't want to talk about them. I know that's really unfair, particularly to Connacht fans. I was just so annoyed with that Newcastle defeat because of the size of the opportunity. Um, And I really believed that they'd go to Newcastle and win. And I had... uh, imagined a scenario in my head in which they were actually building form and that their run-in might be where they finally clicked and Jesus that they could you know certainly seal the playoff place and just finish on a real high under Andy Friend and there's caveats in the Newcastle game as well in terms of selection we discussed that on the members pod plenty during the week it's just that I don't really know what to expect from Connacht now because on a personal level, they let me down. And again, I stress that is unfair. It's just that's the way I feel about them at the moment. I don't think it is unfair. And I think their fans are really frustrated. And people who are like give up a lot of time and effort to support Connacht are really, really disappointed with last weekend. I had an email from uh, Paul, a Connacht fan, and, and he was quite livid and, and has been speaking to other Connacht fans who are in the same boat. You know, it just wasn't at the level they feel that province should be at at this stage in, in their journey and trying to catch clubs and there's an understanding that there's less resource there but that can't be an excuse all the time the team that was sent to Newcastle even with changes I still feel was more than good enough to get the result they needed there we're kind of back to square one aren't we like decent run that's what it feels like and then just an awful performance that's underlines again that they haven't taken that that step so I understand the frustration and even a bit of anger that's there now like you know there's worries that it's just petering out The, the coaching ticket is changing at the end of the season there's no clarity there. That doesn't help things. And, you know, kind of need to be nailing that stuff off the pitch as well as on the pitch and, and having that organised and having players knowing exactly where they're moving even next season and, and beyond. That that stuff is really important. So, yeah, we again, I said it earlier in the week, Connacht need to get that sorted off the pitch, organised, signed, sealed, and people know the direction they're moving in. I think that has an impact on, on how things are going right now, even if it is a, a different coaching ticket. 
Yeah, 100%. You nailed it as well by saying it feels like we're back to square one. And that's two of us as, like, say, neutrals or, or people who are discussing Connacht on a podcast. And we're annoyed, like, audibly annoyed, I would say. So imagine if you are a paying fan taking time out of your week to go to Galway or go and do away games. Um, it's not cheap. It takes a lot of time. Uh, and there's a strong argument that you deserve better. And listen, they've also put in some good performance this, performances this season. But when it feels samesy for so long, it's only natural that you would feel um, just, just, yeah, discontent, just fed up. You know, what's the point in a way if things sort of don't change over a, a pretty long period of time now? Mm. Need a feel good weekend definitely in, in Galway with a convincing performance. And um, just while we're talking about off the field stuff, I thought it was really good to see Munster. Confirming the appointment of Ian Costello as head of rugby operations. Birch flagged this many, many months ago on the pod. I think people will probably remember. Um, and it's confirmed now. I think it's a brilliant appointment. First of all, he's got a great re- and growing reputation. He's really involved in the senior coaching sessions, has done great work in the academy. He's been in England, been in the AIL, has loads of a broad range of experiences. He's rebuilt that relationship with AIL clubs and, and that side of it the connection with the province itself not just professional rugby um has really grown which is is positive to see and also just the role being created is brilliant i mean we've again we discussed it loads in the pod didn't we about how munster were lacking in that area that's less apparent day to day but is crucially important perhaps even as important as the head coach you know this provides continuity and planning around player contracting recruitment player development what's coming down the line where the potential weaknesses and I think that's what Munster have been crying out for. So it is belated in my eyes, but but bravo to them for, for getting that done as well. I think it's news that Munster fans are enthused by and, and really should be. Yeah, absolutely. And we've said it on the podcast a couple of times. Most of the things uh, spoken about on rugby podcasts or just in rugby discourse generally is incredibly immediate. It's likely to change instantly. We've had conversations, I'd say semi-recently, about how wrongly things were going at once they're off the field how poorly managed from the top down they seem to be i think a lot of fans would have shared that uh, sentiment and yet here you are a few months later and it actually feels like once we're becoming a case study and just getting things right there's a good feel about the place not only in terms of um, the relationship between club and fans which i think is becoming closer again after a period in which it felt slightly more distant than it was in say monster's heyday but now in terms of personnel, in terms of the, the actual entertainment product, the rugby that they're playing, and what's left is uh, just to put together, you know, result after result, consistent success on the field. And who knows, they may be able to do that before season's end. Um, this is probably podcast end, is it? Will we leave it there? Yeah, sure is. Got plenty to do. A uh, few pieces to finish ahead of the weekend. And, and yeah, Six Nations really is rolling around in the background. I know we're talking to URC there, but... It is a massive few weeks ahead, so lots of good pods and lots of good chats ahead for, for members. Magnificent. Go well in Belfast tonight. Looking forward to chatting about that with you on Monday. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Cheers for listening. Members.the42.e if you want to join us on Monday, on Wednesday, after Six Nations games and with all of the extra analysis provided by Murray, Kieran as well, via our newsletters. Yeah, members.the42.e. Give it a shot and see if you like it. And if not sure, you can cancel it, whatever, you know. Mind yourselves, enjoy your weekends. Take care. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and here!